Number 226, if you would be marking that, we'll use that as a song of encouragement. 226, as I mentioned earlier, how delightful it is that God has so abundantly and richly blessed us this morning, allowing us to assemble on this first day of the week, the Lord's Day, borrowing the language of Revelation 1, verses 9 and 10. And certainly with all that in mind, we have opportunity, of course, to consider a portion again of the Word of God. I'd like to take just a moment and express a word of appreciation, Brother Cale, for that outstanding lesson he delivered last Lord's Day morning. And as we often comment, it never ceases to be something worthy of reflection. We're so blessed with capable, eager men to use their talents, and they can fill these pulpits seemingly on just a moment's notice. Even as we think about the nature of the talented men we have here today, we also can give thought to the opportunity to think about the house from heaven. I'd like to ask you for the next few moments this morning to think with me about the lesson text and a house that was described as being from heaven. To do that, here are some introductory remarks that point us along that line. We currently, in our Bible reading this year, are in the book of Psalms in the Old Testament, the book of 2 Corinthians in the New. And in fact, this morning's lesson is drawn from that 2 Corinthian letter. Tonight, we'll focus on the Psalms, and specifically the 98th Psalm will be a section from which we will give our thoughts to the lesson tonight. As you look particularly at the words before us in this fifth chapter of 2 Corinthians, as you can well tell, it's going to deal with the subject of hope. The Bible often makes reference to hope. It lifts it up as a sustaining force that can allow you and me in our life to weather the storms of life because we are anchored in a hope that in fact is far beyond the matter of this life. As we think about that subject of hope, the bottom statement on that slide will move us into that which comes next. I'd invite you for the next few moments to think about the biblical definition of hope, what that hope is in terms of its description, and the very vital and real part that that can have in your life and mine. To do that, let's make some introductory comments. Along the line of first, what is this Bible hope to which the Bible writers so often make reference? First, might we say that hope as the Scriptures present it is a matter that really is of vital concern. It's important. We can all remember in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, the inspired writer said, Now there abideth three, faith, hope, charity, and the greatest of these is charity. And to quickly affirm that charity is the greatest, surely that means the other two are also important. Hope is one of them. Hope is a vital and essential ingredient to a life that is directed as God would have it to be. You can also tell as we think about that character of hope. Romans 8.24 says we are saved by hope. There is a very real instance, a means in which the matter of hope is really an important matter of that which leads to your salvation and mine. As faithful members of the body of Christ, as individuals whose sins have been washed away and who live each day in the sunlit life of Christ, we know what it's like to be a hopeful individual. That hope is so sustaining that Hebrews 6.19 describes it as an anchor of the soul, sure and steadfast. No wonder we made the comments that we made earlier that this hope really can serve as an anchor. It allows your life and mind to be so solidly attached to something that won't move with the whims and fancies of culture, society, or otherwise. May I submit to you then that this issue of hope 
quickly suggest the following. Is it not then an incredibly great tragedy for a person to not have hope? To be in position in which the Word of God would honestly say, this individual has no hope? Paul said that with respect to some in Ephesians 2.12, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. There was a class of individuals. Notice they were without Christ, without God. They were aliens from the greatness of God's blessings and described as ultimately having no hope. That surely must be one of the saddest refrains in all of the Ephesian letter to be utterly without hope. That phrase will occur in many ways again in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 when on that occasion there were individuals alive who it says were sorrowing as though they had no hope over loved ones that had passed away. Paul said, if you're a Christian and they are Christians, you have no reason to be without hope. For you can rest assured you'll see them again in the greatest reunion of all times. As you and I continue to think about that element, that attribute of hope, isn't it fair to say that this Bible hope is one that must extend beyond the grave? Paul stated it so very profoundly in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, did he not, when he said, If in this life only we have hope in Christ Jesus, we are of all men most miserable. If our hope cannot go by past the cemetery if it cannot extend in powerful passage beyond the reality of burial in the time of death, then the hope is lifeless, it's powerless, it's empty and it's vain. Our hope surely in Christ extends far beyond the grave. For we understand that this hope of which the Bible speaks is a hope that goes far beyond the matters of this life. Maybe at this point it's time then to appreciate. The Bible says there is one hope. In Ephesians 4, beginning in verse number 4, Paul said, There is one body, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and the Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. You may have noticed at the close of verse 4, he said, There is one hope. The hope then of which you and I have been discussing so far. We've highlighted its importance. We've highlighted some introductory nature of it. We have yet to identify the thoroughness of what it is. This one hope of which Paul spoke, let's look at some other passages. He says in Colossians 1 verse 5, The hope laid up for you in heaven. There's our hope. As Christians, we have that buoyant feeling and recognition that there is that home awaiting far beyond the travails and toils of this life, far beyond that time that may well characterize your death and mine, the absolute assured hope of heaven. As often as the Bible speaks about the matter of heaven, the oneness and the character of that hope, maybe it's time to highlight this. It's time to make a notable distinction in the ways that sometimes words are used. But our Jonathan correctly brought to our attention a moment ago a word that appeared in that song and how we should be mindful of its literal definition. In many ways, something comparable should occupy us as we think about the word hope. Isn't it so often true that we employ the word hope as a matter of wishful thinking? I hope it won't rain tomorrow. Maybe you have a golf game planned. Maybe you want to mow the yard. 
but you have a wish that it'll not rain. Now, you certainly don't know that it won't. And in fact, it might, and it might rain all day long. But let's ponder, what does the Bible have as a definition for the word of hope as it appears in all these verses we've considered? It is not mere wishful thinking. The biblical word hope, that Greek word that is there apparent in those verses, it literally means confident expectation. In other words, when it discusses a hope of heaven, it is a feeling of confident, assured experience in which that will be experienced. It's not just a mere wishful consideration. Confident expectation. How confident are you and I then as it relates to this home in heaven? Are we confident our name is in that book of life? Are we assured of the same and live every day in the buoyant and powerful recognition of that truth? If we aren't sure of it, there's a problem. And if we aren't confident of, that, of inheriting that home in heaven, there's a problem. And it's not with God. It is with me and it is with you. No wonder in light of that, let's go even further and identify the thoroughness of that hope. We've learned that it is the hope of heaven. It is made possible by Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 1 verse 1 says Jesus is our hope. It is He through whom that hope has its reality and its vital nature. In Titus 1 verse 2 we read there that God cannot lie. And hence if He has described eternal life, home in heaven, we know that it exists. And we know that there is a means whereby we can enjoy it. As you notice near the bottom of that slide, this issue of hope takes us to some Bible examples. What about Paul and others who themselves spoke about the nature of that hope? I'm sure we've each reflected so often on the words of Paul. Did he not say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain? He knew the grave was not the end for him. He knew very well that there was a gain, a betterment, an improvement in light of his current status compared to what was to be the case afterward. Two verses later, he could say, again, with such power and might, in Philippians 1 verse 23, he says the character and nature of that verse is this. He said that he would long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. At that point, let's go look at some other passages again from the very writing of the Apostle Paul. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6, 7, and 8. I'm now ready to be offered. The time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of life, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all of them also that love is appearing. Paul, with such a confident statement, said, There is a crown of life waiting for me. He seemingly had no hesitation. He did not say there might be, there perhaps is. He, with confidence, said there is a crown of life awaiting for me. When you and I then continue to think about this hope, maybe one set of verses finally to close this slide. And I'm sure we each in a moment's reflection, would have taken ourselves to 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5. For as often as we've considered what Paul and others have said, look at how Peter put it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
notice he made reference to a lively hope. That adjective lively in that place means it is active, it's living. It is a hope that every day motivates us with incentive to live as we should. A lively hope. And then he describes it in verse number 4. This lively hope, he now says, is undefiled, it is incorruptible, it fades not away, and it's reserved in heaven for you. One more time, we find where it's located. It's in heaven. But now we notice it's incorruptible. It's undefiled. And it never, ever fades away. This precious home, this location, this reward we are seeing is heaven. It is, again, an amazingly profound hope, isn't it? Is it any wonder, then, that Paul encouraged the Thessalonian brethren to be comforted as they think about this place? Aren't you and I comforted as we in the midst of travails and toils and difficulties in life, think about this place, the hope that we have. Maybe in light of all that, let's revisit that passage in 2 Corinthians 5. The lesson text, Brother Joy read that in our hearing earlier. You'll notice that the very first word of verse 1 of chapter 5 is the word for. That is a conjunction that links it to that which ended the previous chapter. In other words, this is a continuation of those thoughts that ended the fourth chapter of 2 Corinthians. Go back to verse 16 and let's read the last three verses of that chapter and let it take us right into chapter 5. For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And immediately Paul has drawn the Corinthians' thought to the fact that in this life we have our affliction, verse 17. And though it may be the case, this outward man is perishing every day. It's wearing out. It's deteriorating. I'm not able to do what I once could. The thoughts and the characteristics of this life are such that it's obvious that it's decaying. But our inward man is renewed day by day. The spirit that is you and me. That inward character that looks forward to the hope in heaven is renewed and buoyed upward and lifted to the great heights of all eternity. It doesn't rest its hope on what it sees here. Notice what we see here is temporal, but what we don't see is eternal. In light of that, he now says, verse 1 of chapter 5, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Isn't it interesting to see how those passages go together? Now he says, if this earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved. That word tabernacle literally means a tent. When the time comes, this old tent is folded up and laid aside. He says, we have a building of God. A house that isn't made with hands and it's eternal in the heavens. Paul immediately draws their attention to the fact that even when the decay has made complete and this old body has been laid in the grave... He says, we have a building of God. There's a provision of that which is a tent, a tabernacle, if you please, but it isn't made with human hands. It isn't made with materials that will decay and waste away. It's made of these things that are eternal in the heavens. 
And he went on to say in verse 2, For in this we groan. In this? Notice the word this is a reference to this tabernacle. As long as I am in this tabernacle, there's every right to groan. What does the word groan mean? You may notice on the slide, it means to sigh deeply. Paul says, as long as we occupy this tabernacle, there's every reason to sigh deeply, for we look for something better than this, for a place in which there is no opportunity and reason to sigh deeply, for there's never any better place to be than that one. It is the absolute best. It is that place, as you can see, he says in verse 4, verse 2, we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. As long as we have this house, we know it's not permanent. But we look for the house that's from heaven. And that gave me the title of the lesson this morning. We look for that which is the ultimate epitome of our hope. No wonder as we close that, that particular slide. What a motivating passage. The house that's from heaven. To be clothed, earnestly desiring to be clothed with that which is from heaven. Let's give some continuing thought through the remainder of the lesson to reflect on that house from heaven, to give some consideration to what the Scriptures inform us about it. And might we say as we do so, it would be entirely right to put it all together in one location. Now we know the house from heaven is not hell. It's just the opposite of it. But let's fill in the middle verse, if you please. And we'll return at the proper time and cast a strong lens of spotlight on this house from heaven. We all know that there are two eternal destinies. Let's give some thought to the other one. The one that Paul didn't find occasion to mention here, but that is so often mentioned elsewhere. We know well that when our time comes that this life is over, and our time of preparation of this life has been completed, and we close our eyes in that eventuality known as death. Or in fact, if the Lord makes His return, we know following that moment of judgment, there are two eternal destinies, and only two. One of them is this place called Gehenna. The King James so often recognizes it as the word hell. G-E-H-E-N-N-A, Gehenna. It is a word that Jesus used so very often, as you can see on the slide. As Jesus Himself introduced it, of the twelve occurrences in the gospel accounts, He used it eleven of them. It's as though the Son of God came to this earth to tell us in no uncertain terms, I'm telling you, there is a place called hell. And here's what you better do to avoid it. And today, 20 centuries later, hell still should be a thought that we at least give consideration to pretty often to make sure our life is such that we do not end up there. No wonder in light of that, these verses come before us. Maybe there is no more expansive passage than Mark 9, verses 43 to 48. And in that location, Jesus identified this place and did so with rather thunderous overtones. In fact, you may remember three things especially He said. He said, if your hand causes you to offend, you'd be better off to cut it off and go through life with one hand than to have two of them to be cast into hell. He went on to say, I'm telling you, if your eye causes you to offend, you would be better off to pull and pluck that eye out and go through life with only one eye than have two of them to be cast into hell. And then he said, I'm telling you, 
if your foot causes you to offend, you would be better off to cut it off and go through life with only one foot than to have two to be cast into hell. Now, those were the words of Jesus. And who better than He should know that there is a place called Gehenna, a place called hell. In light of those things, notice how else He affirmed it. He described it as a place where the worm dieth not, a place where the fire is not quenched. Those were two of the most noteworthy expressions indicative of hell. Gehenna. Now, you and I today, as we listen to and read verses like that, maybe in time we are rather distanced from them, but let me share with you a moment some statements that we've noted in times past, but statements that are still worthy of our reflection. It has to do with Jerusalem. Remember, as Jesus taught these things there in Mark chapter 9, He was in the environs of the Palestinian area. He wasn't far from Jerusalem. As those in Jerusalem heard the Lord make those statements, how did they hear them? And in what kind of connection did they see them? Here's the connection. You and I know that in relation to any city, it has to have a garbage dump. It has to have a place where its citizens can throw their trash. It has to have a place in which the refuse of the city can be taken and dealt with. And so it was for the city of ancient Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a rather populated city, a rather well-known city, and it too had its garbage heap. It was nestled just somewhat south of the city in the valley of Hinnom. You can probably see a connection, Gehenna, Hinnom. The valley of Hinnom, you see, was somewhat south of the city, and it had some Old Testament significance. You may remember that King Josiah, the little boy king, who at the tender age of eight began his reign in 2 Chronicles 33, it was there where many of the refuse and dead bodies and animals were cast for them to decay and to deteriorate. In fact, there was even where some of the idolatrous activity, when the little babies were offered in sacrifice, they cast the burnt bodies into the valley of Hinnom. This was a terrible place. You can imagine it as fires raged 24 hours a day, consuming the garbage that was thrown there. As those dead bodies were burned, the stench must have been almost unbearable. You could imagine as the blood were thrown there and as the bodies were burned, maggots would eat away at it. It was a loathsome place, an abominable place. You could just imagine the worms as they ate away constantly in the, at the bodies, the smell being so terrible. Notice again the description. Jesus spoke about Gehenna as a place where the fire is not quenched, where the worm dieth not. We can see the connection. He says, the closest I can give you as a way to think about hell is this valley of Hinnom. And as the people heard the Lord make those statements, they too appreciated the nature of what that description involved. May you and I see, though very clearly, that this eternal place of Gehenna exists. And Jesus said, this is what it's going to be like. As you go even beyond that, you'll notice it is a place in which we see the horror attached to it. Horror described in verses like these as well as the unrelenting, unending torture that takes place there. Jesus described it as well as other Bible writers. The second death, Revelation 20 verse 6, a place in which the unfaithful and the disobedient of all ages and times shall be cast forevermore to be punished. 
That's the description the Bible sets before us. Although there are some who consider God would be unloving to do so, that is a patent falsehood. Our God is a God of justice just as surely as He is one of love. And He sent His Son. Is it His fault that men won't obey? Is it His fault that men turn a stubborn eye and disobey? Well, of course it isn't. It's a continual message of love, that Son on the cross. And if we fail to avail ourselves of that offering, it isn't God's fault. No wonder as you close that slide, then you notice the Bible so often refers to this lake of fire. A lake of fire. Maybe these pictures will be of some help. Here's a picture of beings being cast. And you can see them falling, headed into a lake of fire. I'm told by those who have unfortunately experienced it that the pain attached to being burned is one of the most excruciating pains of all. You can imagine just when you're burned a little bit. Imagine if your whole body was covered in third-degree burns. Imagine you had to go to the burn unit at Vanderbilt and have them to graft on skin almost all over the body. Think about that pain. Jesus said there is a place called Gehenna. And it is raging fires, unending, undiminishing, unrelenting, and unceasing. It is fire that rages on and on. In fact, as you think about a picture like that one, perhaps we can augment it with another. Here's another picture someone has drawn of a lake. And the writer in Revelation describes it as a lake of brimstone and fire. We know brimstone has a high content of that which relates to the Middle Eastern part of the world. It's what Sodom and Gomorrah was burned in, in Genesis 19. This brimstone and fire, we're, we read in that chapter, the dragon will be cast there. That's the devil, Revelation 12, verses 7 and 8. But we also notice that the false prophets will be cast there, Revelation 19, verses 20 and following. And then finally, we read in Revelation 20 that all the servants of the devil throughout all the ages of time shall be cast there. That's people alive today who choose to be disobedient. All of them are going to end up where the devil and his angels are. Matthew 25:41. Isn't it somewhat amazing to think about this lake? All that's cast there, all the treachery, all the difficulty, all the evil that goes with it, we read about this place. No wonder we need to think about a much sweeter message. I hope if there's any one of you that are concerned you may be headed to hell, you'll do something about it today. But why don't we go back to this text in 2 Corinthians 5. For Paul spoke of a much sweeter place than that. A place that's a house from heaven. To be clothed with a different kind of house than this place we've called hell. Let's give some appreciation to it. For we read of heaven as the place of God's throne. Psalm 11 verses 3 and 4. This sweet abode in which we find that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit reign in regal majesty there. It's a place, in fact, that we begin to read like this. A place of indescribable bliss and joy and happiness. I would quickly invite you to look at just a few brief passages. Of note among all those certainly might be that John chapter 14 passage, for we remember it so easily. Here Jesus was in the very shadow of the cross. He'd be crucified the very next morning. 
and his apostles witnessed something different about his demeanor, his countenance. They saw something unusual about his behavior, and he said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you into myself, that where I am, there you may be also. You'll notice among that set of verses, he said, here's a place where there are rooms in the great mansion of God. There's a room there, and I'm preparing it for you, if you'll simply be faithful to me. He said, I'll come back and take you so that you can be where I am. Sounds like we're talking about the house from heaven. As you think about that house from heaven, Jesus here has noted the marvelous preparation that goes with it. The understanding of that verse leads us to the next one. That majestic destination of the faithful. You and I are taught in Revelation 14, 4, Follow the Lamb whithersoever He goeth. Question, where is the Lamb today? The Lamb is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is now in heaven, and hence if we follow Him, then we'll end up where He is. Are you following the Lamb? Are you marching in His footsteps? May we each with earnestness and diligence be so doing. Following the Lamb, whithersoever He goeth, no wonder that leads us right to what's next. Surely as we contemplate this house, this home in heaven, one of the grandest considerations must be what's not there. The things that do not find presence and experience there. In Revelation 21 verse 27, we notice all sin and all defilement will not be there. That is such a sweet thought, isn't it? All of these things that bother us and trouble us, for instance, there won't be no immodestly dressed people there. As you and I are so agitated and bothered, people make poor decisions about what to wear and how they talk. There won't be any of that there. There won't be any foul language. There won't be any impropriety in any sinful way. In fact, you'll also notice in Revelation 21.4 that there will be no sorrow and no pain, and no death. Those things that so bother us at times. Tears stream down our face when we have to ponder the poor decisions of a loved one. We wish they wouldn't have done that because that's wrong. You'll never have to worry about that in heaven. And finally, that time when we appreciate death. That loved one that we cherish so much passes from us. We stand beside the casket. We go to the place of burial and there's nothing we can do but put the body in the ground because separation has occurred. Friend, there shall be none of that in heaven. So much so that perhaps these pictures are in order. Heaven is described in Revelation 21 as this perfect cube, a perfect geometrical cube, large enough on every three-dimensional side to fully occupy and make available every space for those that are faithful. We'll not have to worry about there being no vacancy in heaven. Hotels on earth may put up signs of no vacancy. There shall be none in heaven. As you think about the perfectness of that description and the brilliance and brightness that goes with it, John said he saw that city, that golden city come down from heaven and we notice it's described with layers of foundations in Revelation 21. And the twelve layers of her foundations are of the finest jewels and gems available. Diamonds and emeralds and sapphires and rubies and 
As you think about all of them, John said, there is a place. And her foundations are that exquisite. You'll also notice even beyond those sweet foundations, doesn't it make you wonder what's on the other side of the door? I thought we might look at another picture. As you look through that door, the Revelation chapter 22, the very last chapter in the Bible, describes it as a place in which the fountain emanates into a stream that flows all the time, watering that which is present in that beautiful garden of God. You'll notice on each side is the tree of life, and it brings forth fruit every month of the year. Here, you and I know that trees only bring forth during their season. You don't gather apples in January. They're not ripe then. That tree of life bears fruit constantly. Isn't it amazing that what we saw in Genesis chapters 2 and 3, there Adam and Eve had access to a tree of life, but they messed up and sinned, and they were thrust out of the garden, no longer having access to the tree of life. Remember, there was a flaming sword placed at the entrance of the garden, Genesis 3, verses 22 to 24. Now we notice when we arrive at this place, we'll have full access to the tree of life all the time. We'll be able to live forever in the beautiful place called heaven. No more separation, no more curse, and no more death. At this point, let's at least make one final statement of the entrance to this place. Revelation twenty-two fourteen. Blessed are they that keep His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and enter in through the gates into the city. We must do His commandments to enter into that place. Entrance is not by happenstance, nor it's not by accident. As this morning to this point we have looked so far at these characteristics of the house from heaven. Let's close our lesson then with this beautiful hope that we've described. There are only two possible eternal destinations, and both of them are eternal. Heaven is eternal, Matthew 25, 46. Hell is also eternal, same verse, Matthew 25, verse 46. One is described as everlasting punishment, the other as eternal life. Today, as you and I contemplate then this house from heaven, again, Paul said, For we know that if the earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Do you know that that is waiting for you? If you do, continue to live in that faithfulness until the time that death takes you. And when it does, then you will know at that moment after death that indeed all is well. But if right now you aren't sure, you're uncertain, your mind is agitated because you don't know, well, may we say God intended for you to know. If you're not a faithful Christian today, let this day be the day that a monumental and colossal change takes place in your life. The plan of salvation reads like this. You are commanded to believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Son of God. John 8, 24. Repent of the sins that have sent Jesus to the cross and have separated you from Him. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. Confess His name as a Son of God, commanded in 1 John four fifteen, And then, be humbly and submissively immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. Acts two thirty eight. If we could help you in that way today, let us do it. But if you have been a faithful Christian but have lost sight of this house from heaven, why not come back to your first love? It is worth it and live faithful thereafter. You need to confess those sins if they're known publicly. Repent of them and let us pray with you. 
Brother Jonathan has chosen this hymn of encouragement. If we could be of assistance to you, don't delay, but come even now while together we stand and while we sing.